chapter 1. In just a few moments we will be reading verses 5 and 6. Back in the 1970s, the Los Angeles Times reported a story of a man and a wife who died in their 50s. They were found dead in their apartment. An autopsy revealed they both died of malnutrition. Interestingly, when the police initially found their bodies and searched their apartment, they found a pile of small paper bags in the closet. Inside those bags, they discovered a total of $40,000 in cash. I don't know about you, but to me it seems a little ridiculous to die of malnutrition with $40,000 or by today's standards with inflation over $200,000 sitting in bags in your closet. Some of you may have heard of Hetty Green. She was an affluent woman who was active in Wall Street at the turn of the last century. When she died in 1916, she left an estate valued between 100 and 200 million dollars. Back then, that, that was a lot of money. Today's equivalent would be somewhere between two and four billion dollars. Just to give an idea of her wealth, the city of New York came to her on a couple of occasions in need of loans to keep the city afloat. Hetty was extremely wealthy, but she also gained a reputation as the world's greatest miser. It was reported she said she ate cold oatmeal because it was too expensive to heat the water to warm it. Her son, when he was young, had a severe leg injury, and she tried unsuccessfully to have him treated at a free clinic for the poor. The delay and subsequent unsuccessful treatments required the leg eventually to be amputated. Her frugality was also said to have hastened her own death. So, just to be clear, you're wealthy enough to bail out the city of New York. Yet, you're not willing to heat your own oatmeal or treat your son's broken leg. It seems that's not really understanding how to use your resources. Friends, the book of Ephesians was written so that Christians don't experience the spiritual version of that. Our Heavenly Father wants us to understand the riches we have in Christ. He doesn't want His children suffering from spiritual malnutrition when there is a feast available for us. This is a book about riches and inheritance and fullness and being filled. It is a book proclaiming what we have in Christ. The natural question for us as we approach it is, are we feasting or are we starving? I want to just briefly thank Jan Villa. She's here for sending those illustrations as she just sent an email talking about her excitement to be in this book. This book about the church and God's riches for His people. Those were both illustrations that John MacArthur used a number of years ago, back in the 70s. My heart for us over this next six months as we get into this book is that we would feast on the riches that God has for us in this book. That we would not be malnourished, but instead we would thrive and grow and see Him as we see Him and what He has for us more clearly in these pages. So, would we now pray together that God would help us to do that this morning? Father, we thank you for the reality that we, we are not paupers. You have not left us as orphans to fend for ourselves, but you have provided all that we need 
for our spiritual health and growth. You have blessed us in every way. Might we see that more fully? Might we be encouraged and excited by that reality as we dig into your word? We pray. Amen. Friends, what we have is so much greater than the ability to bail out New York City. We know that, right? Because of His love poured out for us at the cross, we have the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation. We have the Spirit of God actively at work in our lives, empowering us for witness and growth in becoming more like Him. We are recipients of grace. One of the most mind-blowing ideas ever revealed to man. Yet I'm guessing, if you're anything like me, or as Matt highlighted as we uh, prepared for communion this morning, that even though you may have heard or sung these truths in songs, Maybe you use the, the words gospel, grace, the cross in conversation this week. That doesn't necessarily mean that the realities they represent were much more than a blip on your radar screen over the last week or two. Hopefully I'm wrong. I can only speak for myself. But I personally recognize that even though I am very familiar with these words and ideas, they often don't impact my everyday life like they have the power to. Sadly, I think we know we have this rich heritage. We know we have something valuable in these things that we hold dear. We can, I think at times, even take a certain level of spiritual pride in the glories of these truths that have been revealed to us. We're aware that what we have is valuable and, and many do not share their glories. Maybe you're tempted to compare yourself favorably with the church or denomination you used to attend. Or maybe you take a little bit too much satisfaction in your pet doctrine and how it separates us from the Catholics or the Baptists or the Lutherans or the snake handlers or whoever it is that in your mind just doesn't get it. I know that I have fallen prey to that thinking at different times. Now, I'm not arguing against the value of our values or doctrines or the invaluable scriptural truths we hold dear. But the question for all of us must come, how have those things transformed us? How are we benefiting from them, not just historically, but today, in my current circumstances, how do these things make me more like Jesus in my actions and in my character? Or are they just riches that I know I have that I'm storing up for a rainy day? While an honest look at my spiritual life might reveal signs of malnutrition. In verse 3 of the passage that Matt started us off with two weeks ago, you can turn there, Ephesians chapter 1, we saw that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That means that every blessing of the Holy Spirit has been given us by the Father if we are in the Son. No blessing has been withheld from us. Now, of course, we still have to grow into maturity in Christ. 
We need to be transformed into His image and explore the riches of our inheritance in Him. But if we are in Christ, every spiritual blessing is already ours. That's the context of this letter that we are going to pick up on this morning as we look at one of those blessings more closely. I want to go back just to the start of the paragraph and begin reading in verse 3, and then the the verses we'll be looking at more closely this morning are 5 and 6. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us, in the beloved. Now, as I go through these verses this morning, verses 5 and 6, I, I'm going to be using the wording in the New American Standard translation. As I, I just think there are a couple nuances it brings out more richly in these two verses in particular. So let me just read um, verses 5 and 6 in the New American Standard. It reads, In love, the very end of verse 4, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. If you're the type of person who likes to map out a passage, this one presents itself in a fairly straightforward manner. First, we see in love, we see God's motive. Then, we see what God did, His action. He predestined us. Then we see what He accomplished. God's success was to adopt us as sons. And then we see God's means through Jesus Christ by what He has done for us. He did this to Himself. Then we have a reminder of God's motive according to the kind intention of His will. We have our response to the praise of the glory of His grace. And finally, we have one more reminder of the means that God used to bring all this about, which He freely bestowed on us. It was a gift in the Beloved because of Jesus. That is what we are going to be looking at this morning. If you were listening closely as we read these verses, or if this was something you studied this past week in preparation for our time together, there is more than likely a particular word that jumped out to you. For most of us, I would venture that the word that probably sticks out the most is predestined. I realize that that particular word may stick out to different individuals for different reasons, but is still probably the one voted most likely to grab our attention this morning. For some, it may be, oh no, not that heresy. While others may have the opposite response. Finally, we're going to hear the truth proclaimed. And probably more than a few that are simply curious, I I wonder what they're going to say about that. Can he explain it in a way that actually makes sense? Well, in this passage, he predestined is more than just a curiosity. It is a key word, and as we saw in our little outline of these verses, it is the main action of God that is addressed here. So we will look at 
at the phrases in these verses slightly out of order by beginning with this phrase, He predestined us. Partly because of the rest of the phrases in these two verses are pointing to or explaining or flowing from this phrase. And partly because this area can be such a stumbling block for some folks and I want to remove as many distractions of this idea as we can before we get into the rest of the passage. So we'll spend a chunk of our time around this idea, not because it is anyone's pet doctrine, but because it is what these verses are highlighting and what Scripture highlights. We want to be faithful to highlight. All the while remembering that God intends these truths for our edification, for our benefit, for our nourishment. And as we jump in, I want you to be aware that election is a term that Paul uses elsewhere in his letters to refer to God's merciful, sovereign choosing of individuals for relationship with Him. Election is also the term most commonly used to refer to this idea or this doctrine. So, I may at different times use the word election as well to talk about this idea. And I just didn't want anybody to be confused. Um, We're talking about the same thing here. This choosing of people for salvation was done, as Matt highlighted from verse 4 two weeks ago, before the foundation of the world. It was before any of us existed, let alone had done anything good or bad. Now, it's important to acknowledge that that election or predestination is a divine revelation. This is not a human speculation. It was not invented by Augustine or Calvin as evidenced by passages like this. It is without question the teaching of Scripture And therefore, we must not ignore it. According to the Old Testament, God chose Israel. Out of all the nations of the earth to be His special people. And in the New Testament, we see Him choosing an international community to be His saints, His holy and special people. We must not reject the notion, the idea of election as if it were a weird fantasy or construction of men, but rather humbly seek to understand it as much as we can and accept it as a truth which God Himself has revealed, even if it is perplexing or mysterious to us. Now, I'm reluctant to quote the man who I'm about to, in this message in particular, not because I don't respect his voice, but because I know that the very mention of his name with this topic can be a stumbling block for some. But in this particular thing, I don't think there will be great offense in quoting John Calvin because of the content of these two lines. Although we cannot conceive either by argument or reason, how God has elected us before the creation of the world. He's recognizing there is great mystery in this topic. And one of the great minds the last 500 years saying, boy, by reason, by argument, we can't conceive how God has done this, how He has worked it. Yet, we do know it by His declaring it to us and experience itself vouches for it sufficiently. Friends, that is an approach of humility and that's always the order that we ourselves must follow. First, we know it by God's declaring it to us. Then, and only then, can experience vouch for it sufficiently. Certainly, if we think and we reflect, it was Paul's experience. The persecutor of the church was 
confronted by the risen Jesus on his way to arrest believers in Damascus. And he found out that he had been chosen for a very different mission than the one he had devoted his life to. And it was John the Baptist's experience as he was filled with the Spirit even in his mother's womb. Were not Mary and Joseph specifically chosen for the role they would play in redemption's story? Was the experience of Peter or John or any of the apostles any less predestined by our Lord? Undeniably, Abraham and the nation of Israel as a whole. But is it any less the case for any of the children of His promise, whether it be Jacob or Joseph, Moses, David, Daniel, Elijah. What about the 3,000 individuals added on the day of Pentecost, hearing God praised in their own tongues? Or Cornelius, who Peter received a vision of to go and to visit? Or the... Ethiopian eunuch whose chariot God told Philip to approach. What about our own stories? How many of us can recount God's gracious revelation and rescue in our lives totally apart from our seeking Him out? Though we are not able to understand or explain the ins and outs of how God predestines. And and let me just be clear. We don't understand and we can't uh, explain all the ins and outs of how God predestines. Can we deny that His sovereign hand is clearly at work in the salvation of sinners? It doesn't mean that God's election or predestination operates apart from or nullifies man's responsibility to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. In the Gospels, we clearly see John the Baptist and Jesus both making appeals to people's wills, calling them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We also see Jesus speaking of individuals um, And talking about how they are refusing to come. How they are exercising their will in their choice of coming to Him. When He says in John chapter 5, 39 and 40, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me. That you may have life. Friends, we have a will. And we will be held responsible for the choices and actions we make. Now, the reality that we have a will that we are accountable for and that God predestines individuals to salvation are both presented in Scripture. To God, therefore, they are not mutually exclusive. Now, that doesn't mean that it all adds up like a tidy math equation in our minds. But just because our finite minds have trouble grasping both truths at the same time doesn't mean God has erred by presenting both in His Word. The reality that God's ways are higher than our ways. And that there are very real elements of mystery in our present experience definitely come to bear in moments like this. I think John Stott spoke wisely when he said, Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election. And we should beware of any who try to systematize it too precisely or rigidly. It is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to a problem which has baffled the best brains of Christendom for centuries. 
In other words, we need to approach topics like this with a bit of humility. Did you choose God? Yes, you freely did. But you ultimately did so because in eternity, he first chose you. I don't know exactly how that works. But it's the clear teaching of Scripture. Now in Scripture, this truth, this reality, is never used as a dividing line for unbelievers. Or really directed at unbelievers at all. To the unbeliever, the appeal is always an appeal to the will. Repent. Believe. Trust in Him. Turn from your sin and run to Jesus. That is always the approach with unbelievers. It's never try and figure out if you are one of the elect. Election is a teaching for believers. It is meant to be a security and a comfort for those that God has redeemed. It's reminding us that our salvation is all the initiative of God. Friends, it is something He is committed to in eternity past. It is something He has acted on in time, both in sending His Son as well as doing whatever He did to draw you in time to Himself so that you could choose Him. And it's something that eventually He will bring to its triumphant completion and fulfillment and eternity future. It's meant to be an encouragement to our souls. It's meant to let us know that we don't need to live in fear over whether I've done enough or been faithful enough to hold on to God. For He has from eternity been pursuing and rescuing us. Drawing us to Himself so that He can hold us firmly in His hands and present us on the final day to His Father. God is superintending the process from start to glorious end. This truth is for believers, but it should inform our faith and approach with unbelievers as well. The elect are only revealed as they respond to the gospel message. So, we share with all, without discrimination, knowing that God will save some. Far from being a deterrent to evangelism, it should be an encouragement knowing that God has chosen individuals from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Every person on earth is a candidate to respond to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Their response is ultimately between them and God. But our job is to be faithful in proclaiming the good news. And I'm grateful that we have an opportunity to do that together through Christianity Explored this fall. May He help us to grow in this area that we need to grow in. And let me just say to any who are here this morning that have never trusted in Christ for His provision of dealing with their sins, you can disregard that whole section. The thing that you need to know is that if you are apart from God, you are in perilous danger. But He has made a provision for you to be rescued from your sin and the righteous punishment that it has earned. 
That way is only possible through the sacrifice of His Son on your behalf. There is no other way. You cannot be good enough. You can't give enough. There is nothing within your own power that you can make your way to right relationship with God. But the good news is that He has done all that is required for you. You simply need to trust in what He has done. That He has done it for you. That He can take away your sin and make you clean. He desires to have relationship with you and for you to enjoy relationship with Him forever. That is what you need to know. He offers it freely as a gift. He holds it out. All you need to do is receive it and open it and benefit from it. We all enter the same door that reads, Whosoever will may come. It's just that when we get on the other side of that door and we look back, we see the words chosen from the foundation of the world. Our job is not to be primarily occupied with how election works, though. But the question for us is to, to what effect... What, why? Why was it important to God to reveal this to us? He chose to put this here. He chose to reveal this to His people. Why did He want to reveal this to us? Friends, these truths are meant to feed us. They're meant to be nourishment for our souls. Not primarily given for endless debate. He wants us to be healthy. He wants us to be well fed. We've already hit on a couple of the effects it should have. There's a security for the believer who recognizes God's hand in their entire salvation. should be an encouragement to evangelism knowing that God desires to save. And as we proclaim, there will be effect as individuals respond to His glorious good news. But I think the rest of these verses are written to expand those effects. And the author wants us to be fed and encouraged by their reality. So next, let's move to God's motive. These are the very last words of verse 4. There weren't verse breaks in the original text. I believe this is part of the thought that we're talking about. In love. And really this is the phrase that informs everything else that's to follow in these two verses. This is why. This is why God predestined. So many times election is viewed as a, a calculated act by an unfeeling deity. Just arbitrarily choosing you, not you. Nope, nope, not good enough. If He chooses, why doesn't He just save everybody? The ideas of love and predestined in many minds simply don't belong together. Each is assumed to be mutually exclusive of the other. But God's Word here declares in black and white, it was in love that He predestined us. To understand this, we, we first need to acknowledge that our vantage point is clouded by our own bias. After all, we think we're fairly wonderful beings and we kind of rightly deserve to go to heaven. I mean, don't we think that? Deep down... How dare God keep anyone out of heaven? Friends, our vantage point isn't an accurate picture of reality. We are not the offended party in the scenario God is. 
we have rebelled against Him and the very purpose for which He created us, in the cosmic courtroom, we all stand guilty and deserving of His wrath. Of our own volition, of our own will, we have chosen the way apart from God that seemed best to us. We all, both by nature and by action, have set our courses for hell. He is perfect. He's blameless. He is holy, righteous, and pure. His ways are good and just. And from creation on, He has deserved. He has earned. He is worthy of our loyalty, our love, our worship and our obedience. Yet we chose a different way. He has every right to be angry with our rebellion. And that rebellion is fully deserving of His just punishment. In that context... The question of why doesn't God save everyone is wholly out of place. The more fitting question in such circumstances is why would God save anyone? None of us deserved to be saved. What we deserved was an eternity of torment apart from God. That is what our actions have earned. That is our rightful place. We have earned His anger. And then when we add on top of that, that the only way for us to be saved... is for the offended, righteous judge to send His own Son. His only Son to be punished in our place. It really does beg the question, why? Why would He save any of us? He wasn't obligated to. Lest we forget when the angels fell, there was no opportunity for redemption for them. Our experience is unique. Why would He choose to rescue us who were headed by our own choices straight to the hell we deserved? In love. In love, He predestined us. That's why. The fact that He would choose to rescue anyone is a marvelous miracle of His love and grace that we can take for granted so easily. Instead, let us celebrate that in His love and compassion, He chose to save. Let us seek to be faithful in proclaiming that good news to all around us. 
that they too might know his salvation. For Peter, Second Peter 3.9 states, He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we, may we not second guess His love or compassion when someone we love refuses to repent and believe. We've seen God's motive in love. We've seen God's action. He predestined us. Let's look at God's success. What has He accomplished through His loving action? It was to adoption as sons. This is what His loving choosing of individuals produced. Sons and daughters adopted into His family. This is the point of predestination, relationship. He is no cold, calculating God, callously keeping people from heaven. Quite the opposite. In love, He graciously plucks hell-bound sinners from their chosen fate and adopts them into His family. There is no greater rescue operation needed and no more wonderful fate imaginable. We spent the first two messages at Renew marveling in the glory of God's adoption of us. And and I humbly, since I was giving one of those messages, commend them to you for regular review. There is much richness in what God has done in adopting us as His children. By way of reminder, His adoption of us means that He can't possibly love us any more than He already does. He already has given us the fullness of His love. And He won't love us any less. It is not based on our behavior, what we do, or don't do, He has brought us into His family. Much more than just a legal declaration by a judge saying we are not guilty, Him adopting us reveals His intense affection and commitment to intimate relationship with us. We're not just forgiven and then forgotten. We are brought near To Him as our Father. We have access to Him and fellowship with Him. And because we are sons, we share the inheritance that our elder brother Jesus has won on our behalf. The righteousness He accrued through His sinless life, through His perfect obedience and fulfilling the law was credited to our account when He exchanged His record for our own taking our sin upon Himself at the cross. Because He was treated at Calvary as we deserved, we will be treated forever as He deserved. That is why it says two verses before these that we are the recipients of every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. We inherited it all when He brought us in to His family. What a wonderful truth. Well, I've already begun to spill into the next phrase, which is, through Jesus Christ, He brought us to Himself, which is God's means, the way in which He accomplished that which He planned from eternity past to do in bringing us into relationship with Himself. So adoption was the result of God's electing love and and Jesus' great exchange of His perfect life and the accompanying reward that He deserved for His life. That was exchanged with our sin and the accompanying punishment that it rightly deserved. 
That was the means which God used to accomplish what He determined in love to do before the foundation of the world. Now we see a couple reminders as we move on in these verses. Paul doesn't want us to forget. So he repeats and emphasizes these realities so that we don't miss the spiritual blessing and nourishment that they contain. Reminders of God's motive and His means. He really doesn't want us to miss or forget all of this was by His kindness and His love graciously given us only through what Christ has done for us. So he immediately repeats and highlights these facts again. He reminds us of the motive when he says, according to the kind intention of his will. Friends, this was solely his choice, not something he was under compulsion or obligation to do. He was compelled simply by love. No one did or could force his hand in this. In his loving kindness, he drew us near. And we're reminded of the means at the very end that he chose to do this when he says, which he freely bestowed on us. It was a gift in the beloved. There's no question where the glory lies. No room for us as receivers to be patting on our own backs for being chosen. This work is of God and it is glorious. It was freely given to us only because Jesus accomplished all that was required. So the response that we're given here is that there should be praise to the glory of His grace. He is worthy of all the glory. His loving grace towards us should bring forth humble worship and adoration from us, from our hearts, from our lips, from our lives. It is the most appropriate response. When we encounter hard truths, we must not limit our praise to what we can figure out. We also worship Him because His ways are higher than our ways. And we seek and ask how such realities, even if only partially understood, should nourish us. Some people think that to believe oneself one of God's chosen people is about the most arrogant thought anyone could ever entertain. And it would be if we imagined God had chosen us for any merit of our own. But there is no room for merit in the biblical doctrine of election. The opposite is the case. Listen to how God explained his choosing of Israel to them in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. The Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God made sure to highlight to Israel that He had not chosen them because they were better than other nations really in any way. And, and indeed, their history proved time and again that they were not. Why did He choose them? Because He loved them. The reason why He chose them was in Himself. It was who He was. His love and compassion Displayed in them. It was not in them or something they had earned or merited. This same truth is hammered home in Ephesians. This entire teaching really is about the greatness of God's love 
not the worth of those he saves. The doctrine of election is a stimulus, an encouragement, a shouting to humility, never a ground for boasting. And we will forever praise the glory of His grace. So, among us, may we not let God's grace to be just a buzzword to us. May we not confuse knowing rich words and even believing wonderful truths with satisfying our souls with their realities. There's a difference. Let us not allow familiarity with concepts to dull our hearts or ears to listening and ingesting them afresh. Brothers and sisters, we, we need nourishment day by day. But we are not paupers. We have wealth and resources far beyond what any of us have begun to imagine or plumb the depths of. And if the idea that you are possibly spiritually malnourished, struck a chord with you, it would be a misapplication of this message to go away discouraged. If that is something that God is revealing to you, do not see it as a sign of failure, but an invitation to the banquet table. Your Father is lovingly bringing your condition to your attention not to condemn you, but to care for you and remind you of the grandness of your inheritance in Him. You are His child and there is no need for you to go hungry. Because God has chosen to make us His sons and daughters Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. And He wants us to enjoy the feast. Let's pray together.